thanks for being here for part of this weekend celebration. And thank all of you uh, servicemen and women again who've served so bravely for all of us. Uh, I want to say a special welcome to you. Today we're continuing a series we started about five weeks ago uh, on the book of Nehemiah. And so if you have a Bible, you, you can go ahead and turn there. But how many of you are from a traditional church background? In other words, you, you grew up in a in traditional... I did. Raise your, raise your hand and just... Let's look around and see how many people that is. Yeah, that's at least half. Okay, so if you're from a traditional church background, you're going to understand everything I'm about to say. If you're not from a traditional church background, trust me, <laughs> okay? Uh, I, I grew up in a little small church. Uh, it was traditional, and it was in the holiness tradition, which means everything was tight. Anybody grow up in the holiness tradition? Everything was wrong, <laughs> and everything was tight. Even joy was tight. I'm sure we had some form of joy, but it was very measured. It was very tight. It was very, you know, uh, ruled out. My great-grandfather was the pastor of the church I went to, and we had one of those plaques on the wall that would show you how much the offering was that day and how many people were in the room. Ours was small enough. Anybody could have done that number themselves. And we had uh, 40 people. We were, we were killing it. I mean, it was a huge day. Nobody knew what went wrong. You know, maybe the world was ending. Everybody rushed into the church, all 40 of us. And then you would have the guest number. So it'd be like something like two, you know. And then everybody would look around and find, find those two, which didn't take long in our church. So that's the kind of church I, I grew up in. My great-grandfather was the pastor, uh, and he's from the old school. He pastored 67 years. Come on. 67 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Back in that day, you know, you preach till you die. I mean, that's it. Jesus is going to take you home from the pulpit one day. And everybody's left to have to work it out. So uh, to me, my great-grandfather was sort of like the fourth member of the Godhead. There was the Father, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and my great-grandfather, Peepaw. Peepaw. He was, Peepaw was right there in the Trinity, and, and, uh, and I was afraid of him. I was very afraid of him. Partly because every time he shook, me, shook my hand, he hit me in the back so hard I thought I was going to fall down. That was just his way of kind of, it was a fun thing for him. He wasn't being mean. But, but as a little kid in that environment, you know, I was very afraid because we lived in a very lockdown setting. Everything was wrong. Everything was wrong. You know, you couldn't do anything. You had to wear a certain kind of clothes and, and there wasn't any makeup and there weren't any earrings and it, it, everything was wrong. And I can remember eating candy in church was wrong. So any of you this morning, you got a mint in your mouth, you are going to hell. I want you to know, you are out. You couldn't, you, some of you, if you grew up, you know what I'm talking about. You could not eat a piece of candy while the service was going on. I, don't, I never knew why it was wrong. I never got any theology on that. It was just wrong. And so, you know, what we would do is we'd just duck under the pew. You know what I mean? Slip it in there real quick and then come back up. Like a little submarine dip. And we even got, you know, there's different methods of getting a mint in your mouth when it's wrong. So what I would do is you'd unwrap it and you'd pop it right there in your, and your, make a little hole right there and put a little mint in there. And you'd go, <coughs> but when you would do that, you would suck in instead of out. you just make the noise. And I always thought, if this is wrong, God's going to make me choke to death. I'm going to suck that mint down in my throat sideways. I'm going to get it caught and I'm going to die. But I didn't, and so maybe it wasn't wrong. When I got too rowdy, somebody would look over at me. If they wouldn't pinch your ear or thump you in the back of the head, uh, something like that, they would look over and say, hey, the pastor's looking at you. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was mortifying to me. I'm like a 12-year-old like kid 
you know, maybe half ADD. I can't even pay attention. I'm just coming in and out of reality every now and then. And all of a sudden, I don't even know what I'm doing. And somebody says, hey, the pastor's looking at you. And he's preaching up there. He's walking around in this big, long, dark suit. And, he, and I, think, I think he is looking at me. And I was afraid. Okay, so here's the thing. That put the fear of God in me. That environment made me afraid. And I would sort of stiffen up for a little while. And, and that's kind of the environment I was raised in. I learned that my great-grandfather and, I guess, any pastor and God were to be feared. And not in a good way. So what we learned from the fear is don't change what you do, just hide it better. That's what we learned, right? So half of my family who grew up in that tradition were chain smokers uh, and gossip like crazy. So you don't miss church because you miss church, they're going to kill you. They're, they're, you're the one they're going to talk about. Well, I mean, they're, they're leaving the faith. You know, and that's kind of the environment I grew up in. So here's what I want you to notice. Notice that the fear of my... Now, they would do all these wrong things. They just hid it from my great-grandfather because, remember, he's the fourth member of the Trinity. Like he had a direct line to God. If he sees it, God's going to know. And so notice this. We learned to hide things because of that fear, but that fear didn't cause us to change any of our behavior. Just get better at hiding. Just get better at pretending. Just get better of acting like everything was okay when it wasn't. We were doing what we were supposed to do when we weren't. And that's because we had embraced condemnation. Now, that's a very important uh, difference. Rather than having a healthy respect for God, we had embraced condemnation. So here's what I want to share with you this morning from the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. I want to share a message this morning uh, about walking in the fear of the Lord. Woo! I know you've been sitting there saying, I've been longing to hear a message about the fear of the Lord. Thank God. We've got lightning bolts uh, scheduled today. If you move the wrong way, they're going to just shock you and zap you right where you are. Not really. It's not like that. But I want to share with you about walking the fear of the Lord. Now, I struggle with this phrase because there's no way I can see that any time we read the word fear in Nehemiah chapter 5, that it is saying the same thing that all of us are going to hear if I use the word fear. It's not, it's, we don't use the word fear in our culture the way Nehemiah 5 uses fear. So I think we need to talk about how we might redefine that a little bit so we can understand it. So when we say fear of the Lord, what most of us hear is condemnation. Oswald Chambers said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of just, I, this is just a list I made, it's not scientific, I'm not even sure it's theological, but it's a list I made because I said, I wonder what the difference, what do I think the difference is in my own mind in condemnation of the fear of the Lord? So I just want to give you that list. Condemnation shames you. The fear of the Lord inspires you. Condemnation attacks your identity. Uh, the, the fear of the Lord calls you to live up to your identity. Condemnation weakens you. The fear of the Lord empowers you. Condemnation focuses on the problem but hides the solution. There is, that's what condemnation does. There is no solution. You are wrong, and you will always be wrong, and you can't do anything about it. That's what condemnation says. But the fear of the Lord says, no, 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 no. There is a problem, but Jesus died on the cross, and he brought the solution, and he is overjoyed to give it to you. 
He longs for you to have the solution. Condemnation divides and isolates you. The fear of the Lord reconciles and puts you in relationship. Condemnation separates you from God and His purposes. It says, this life of faith is for everybody but you. After what you've done, after where you've been, after the way you were raised, after the choices you made, after the secrets that you're carrying around, this life is for everyone but you. That's what condemnation says. But the fear of the Lord says it connects you to God and his purposes. This life is especially for you, specifically for you. So in Nehemiah, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you read the word fear, it actually can be translated several different ways. Uh, three, other is, uh, three other ways are uh, reverence, worship, and I love this one, awesomeness. <laughs> Walk in the awesomeness of God. Walk in worship of God. Walk in reverence for God. I, I, I like the one awesomeness. So today when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're going to talk about walking in the awe of God. Uh, several years ago, back, back in maybe 1997 or 8, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to uh, the Netherlands. I'd never been to Europe. Uh, she and I had never been to the Netherlands. And when the plane landed, it happened to be uh, April and tulip season. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Netherlands, but it is, um, it is gloomy and dark and the sun doesn't shine much, but it is a fabulous environment for, for flowers and florals and all of that. And the dirt is black and the grass is bold green and it has canals and waterways everywhere and it is just a beautiful ecosystem for those kinds of things to live. And so it happened, and uh, Netherlands is a huge a grower of tulips. And so it happened to be tulip season. You see the windmills and the wooden shoes and the cheese shops and all, all of this. And we landed, and on our way to the hotel, we passed a field, a farm of tulips. Now, I've passed a lot of farms in my life. I've passed cotton and corn and beans and in Arkansas, I've seen the rice fields. I've seen a lot of crops grow. I've never seen anything like a field of tulips. And so as we passed it, I, I looked out the window. If you've ever seen anything like this, I looked out the window, and it, it's, it was so vivid, my eyes seemed blurry. I put my, my hands on the window of the car thinking, I think I can touch one of those. if I just It's right there. I can see. And so I just wanted to bring you a picture this morning. It looks like this. It is, it is football fields long of beautiful, bright, glorious tulips. And they were in full bloom purple and red and white and yellow. Absolutely gorgeous. It was a moment of transcendent wonder. I'll never forget the day that I first saw a tulip field. That is what the awesomeness of God is like. It's transcendent wonder. It's beauty. It's majesty. It creates. It inspires. It causes. Uh, uh, it attracts you and motivates you. And it's, and it's not this anxious and worrisome 
thing that we attach to fear. It stirs up curiosity and it leads you to the greatness of God. You look at that field and you say, whoa, how did this happen? So let me give you a quick definition this morning before we read Nehemiah 5 of the awe of God. The awe of God is a deep reverence for God that causes us to want to please Him at all cost. The awesomeness of God inspires us, motivates us, draws us, magnetically draws us toward Him and wants to please God at all cost. There is no thing I wouldn't give to please Him. The awe of God is a critical thing to understand for today's message because if, uh, if you're a guest, let me kind of catch you up. In June and July, we started reading the book of Nehemiah together uh, in the Old Testament the time frame is the, sort of the last time period in the Old Testament, although the book's earlier in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that. So we've been looking roughly at a chapter a week. Today we're on chapter 5. Nehemiah was the assistant, kind of like the assistant to the king of Persia, who ruled 50 million people. So it was a very important position that he had, even though he wasn't Persian, even though he was Jewish. He found his way into this place of favor, and he was assistant to the king. He was highly trusted. Nehemiah was given permission by the king to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the, uh, rebuild the city. So uh, we called this series, uh, When the Walls Are Gone, because as Nehemiah returns or goes probably for the first time to Jerusalem, the city's been destroyed by war decades and decades and decades earlier. The walls are crumpled down. The gates are burned, which in that time is the equivalent of we have no, we have no protection, we have no security, we have no military. How do we raise kids? How do we do family life? How do we rebuild the Jewish religion? How do we even be a city without walls? Because anybody from anywhere at any time of day or night can come through and just take over. There, there's no protection. So that's, that's where they were. So we've called this uh, when the walls are gone because of the decimation of the walls. So the question we've been asking in this series are, what do you do when the walls are gone? What do you do when stability and protection and covering is gone? This city and nation and culture and religion are in an absolute crisis trying to survive into the next phase. Now, this is not at all unlike the, the place we find ourselves in in America today. Now, we don't have walls around our city, but we have many um, attacks coming at us, uh, technological attacks, you know, uh, bank fraud, uh, people trying to steal military secrets, uh, our moral walls are down, our spiritual walls are down. We live in a very dry uh, and an empty place spiritually. That's the point of history that we're in right now. And so um, I don't know if you know who David Gergen is. Uh, David Gergen served four U.S. presidents as a senior advisor. He has 25 honorary degrees and a few other doctoral degrees. Super smart guy. He was interviewed earlier this year by a pastor. And here's what the pastor asked him. Are we living in unusual times? I mean, from a historical, political standpoint, a national standpoint, You've been in the White House four times. Are we living in unusual times, or is this kind of a time like we've been through a dozen times? And here's what David Gergen said. Every expert I know is confused. Every expert I know is confused. These are unusual times. This is a first, he said, in my lifetime. And I think a first in our nation's history. 
We've never been at a crisis point like we are now. We've casted off restraint. The walls are gone, and our stability is down. So that's very much like the book of Nehemiah, and we come to chapter 5, and that's the setting, that's the scene that Nehemiah finds himself in. So let me give you a little backdrop to chapter 5, and then we'll look at it. Verse 1 through 5, here's what's going on. Nehemiah is the governor of Jerusalem. God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls so the city and the people could move forward. In the meantime, people start to complain. And these are not like last week, Pastor Joel showed you some of the complaints that were brought in chapter 4. These aren't the same as the complaints in 4. Not all complaints are equal. The ones from chapter 4 came from the outside. In chapter 5, the complaints are coming from the inside, which poses a much greater risk. The people were upset because there was a famine. The reason there was a famine is because actually the rebuilding of the wall had partially caused a famine. The push to rebuild was the, was the hardest on farmers and those that lived in rural areas and rural communities because they were called to neglect their farming and, and move into town or stay in, work in town and help rebuild the walls. Well, when they did that, they didn't have enough time to produce the crops that were needed for them to sustain their farm, sustain their self, sustain their family business, and all of that. So now it had driven them into poverty and into debt with other fellow Jews. And so if you read verse 1 through 5, that's kind of what you'll get. So the debt was so high that some of them had uh, sold their children off into slavery to their debtors to work the debt off and then come back home. In extreme cases, some of the people had, some of the farmers had given their daughters as second wives to the debt collectors to pay the debt. So they're saying, look, this is wrong. We shouldn't have to sell our children into slavery to other Jews when we're both trying to rebuild the city together and, uh, and we can't pay for it because we've neglected our own farming. So that brings us to verse 6. Let's read now Nehemiah chapter 5, 6 through 8 together. And that's, that's the complaint that's come. That's the reason that it's happened. They brought it to Nehemiah. Here's Nehemiah's response. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This dude's livid. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles. That word ponder has a very interesting translation uh, in other verses. Uh, some people translate it, I mastered my emotions. Wow. Well, we'd be better off uh, if we lived like that, wouldn't we? I mastered my emotions and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest? Really? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Now, look, I wouldn't recommend that. Like, that is not the way I would recommend. If somebody's doing something wrong, I wouldn't recommend, hey, why don't we just take that to Sunday morning service and let's line everybody up in the front. We'll tell everybody what they did and we'll fix it. Like, I, that's not, would not be my instinct to go that way. So he did. As far as possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet. Yeah, of course. Because they could find nothing to say. So I continued. Here, here's what he said. I continued. What you are doing is not right. Here's the phrase I want you to hang on. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? So here's what I, I don't, it's hard for us to feel what they're feeling. So let's put it in a modern day example that might help us feel. Remember, Nehemiah is not a priest. 
He's not a king. He's not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's the governor. So I want you to imagine then, this is not a spiritual leader. I mean, he is a very spiritual man. But I want you to imagine 1960, Montgomery, Alabama, the governor walking into an all-white segregated church and calling everybody together in the community to meet and looking at that congregation and saying, hey, you are mistreating and isolating yourself from black people. And you are wrong. And shouldn't you stop doing this because of the fear of the Lord? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is how this felt to them. So Nehemiah is saying, come on, guys. There's the awe of God. Where's the awe of God in your thinking? Where's the awe of God in your decisions? Where's the awe of God in the way you treat people? So Nehemiah says to all the leaders, I want you to immediately... Immediately, give back everything you took. Give back the land, give back the house, give back the interest, and stop charging them interest. And the people said, we'll do it. We'll give it back. I don't know. Maybe it was the right way to handle it. It worked. So Nehemiah calls the priest, uh, just to make sure they understood, we're not joking. He called the priest and he said, all right, I want the priest to come down and let's seal this covenant. If you break your word, if you say here in front of everybody, I'm going to do it, and then you don't go do it. Here's what I want to happen to you. He took his cloak. You'd have to know something about the clothes of that day. He took the cloak, and he shook it out. And so it would be the equivalent of us taking somebody's pants and turning them upside down, and their wallet, and their change, and their money, or somebody's purse and turning it upside down and shaking it all out, and then going, what's left? Nothing. Right. If you don't keep your word, that's what I want God to do to you. He basically called a curse down on them. <laughs> if you don't keep your word, if you don't follow through, if you don't do this right, may God do what to you what I'm doing to this purse and this pair of pants. May he leave you with nothing and empty. Now, Nehemiah was the governor, and as such, he had privileges. Uh, and his leaders had privileges. Now, here's what, if you'll read Nehemiah 5, you'll read this. It says, for the next 12 years. That's a long time. That's first grade to 12th grade. For the next 12 years, he did not take any of the privileges or any of the tax that a governor had every right under the law to take because he thought it was a hardship on the people. He didn't cash in on his privileges. He didn't cash in on the money. They didn't receive the taxes they were supposed to. Now, on top of that, at the, at the governor's table, he fed 150 people every night. So I don't know if you uh, are an accountant, you want to do the math. Basically, Nehemiah is saying, it's costing me money to be governor. I'm losing more than I'm gaining. So now, last verse. Verse 15, why did he do it? But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. Look, but out of what? Reverence for God, I did not act like that. Do you know what that Hebrew word reverence is there? Fear. It's the same exact word we read in verse 9. Reverence, fear, worship, awesomeness. It's the same word. Out of, out of the awe of God, out of the awesomeness of God, out of the wonder and the inspiration 
and, and the reality that I am accountable. I have to give some answer for God. I walked in the awe of God. You know, there's things, uh, three things that Nehemiah had an opportunity to take advantage of. This is what I was thinking when I was reading Nehemiah 5. People, money, and privilege. He had the opportunity to take advantage by his position. He had every legal right to take advantage of people, and the people before him had done it. Money and privilege. Boy, that's kind of like where we live now, isn't it? That's sort of what we see the example that many of our leaders, too many of our leaders give. So what is the motivation that Nehemiah has to treat people, money, and privilege right? What's the motivation? What's you and I's motivation to treat those three things right? Nehemiah says, it's the awe of God. Where's your awe of God? You can't treat people wrong. If you treat people wrong, where's your awe of God? You can't mistreat money. You can't mishandle money. You can't use money the wrong way. You can't cheat with money. If you do, where's your awe of God? You may have privileges someone else doesn't have. You can't mishandle those. Why? Where's your awe of God? Because we said it this morning when we sang, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe you're present in this room. And if you're present, I must have a sense of all that you're here. And that all must change the way that I treat people and money and privilege. I must handle it differently. Why? Because God's in the room. I'm not alone. And I will see him physically in heaven and give an answer for what I did. I'm accountable to him. That's what Nehemiah's whole point is. That, that's one of the greatest challenges we have in our culture right now. We've systematically removed God from every sector that we can, and we continue to remove him from every, every other sector we haven't yet. And the reason that's bad is because you have no standard to call people back to. Nehemiah had a standard. He said, hey, where's your all of God? Go to the public school and say, where's your all of God? Go to the government building and say, where's your awe of God? And you know what they do? They continue to be corrupt. They continue to mishandle things because there's no awe of God. That's the foundation. That's where it goes wrong. So Nehemiah says, where's your awe of God? Don't you know you're accountable to him? You, you must treat people right. You must treat money right. You must treat privilege right. Micah 6.8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what is the awe of God? The awe of God is a deep reverence for God that causes us to want to please Him at all cost. So, as we sort of wrap, wrap this up this morning, I, I want to just rapid fire five or six things at you. If you want to write these down, write these down. I'd encourage you to write these down. T take, take notes on this. How do you know when you're living in the awe of God? How do you know when you're living in the awe of God? Number one, when the thought of disappointing God is painful to you. When the thought of disappointing God is painful to you, you are living in the awe of God. You are walking. As Nehemiah said, walk. You are walking in the awe of God 
when the thought of disappointing him is painful, when it hurts your heart, when that's a negative thing, when, you, when that's a traumatic thing, you say, no, 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 no. I'm constrained to do the right thing here. I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because I don't want to disappoint God. And I think if I did the other one, I would disappoint him. Number two, when you put aside personal preferences in favor of God's preferences. Here's the question. How uncomfortable are you willing to get to please God? How much discomfort are you willing to allow in your life in order to please God? That is a gauge on how much of the awe of God you're walking in. Number three, when you're organizing your life around God's priorities. When God's priorities are your priorities, you are walking in the awe of God. When you are setting your schedule, when you are setting your rhythm, when you're setting your days, when you're setting your weeks, when you're setting your calendar, when you're setting your agenda, when you're setting where you will invest yourself by God's priorities, you're walking in the awe of God. Number four, when it's clear to you that God wants you to do something and you do it. When you have this sense, you ever have this little impression inside that, hey, I need to... Uh, we, were, we were at uh, our beach camp last week. Um, uh, one, one night of the services, we go down to the beach, okay? And um, we have a prayer time, communion and prayer time. So we're doing all that. Then people are kind of scattered around praying by themselves. And I was standing there, and I, I'm, I'm not a, a direct part of that moment. So I was just sitting there praying myself, worshiping and praying, enjoying the ocean breeze in my face, just loving God. And, and I thought, I wonder, Lord, I wonder if there's, if there's anybody you want me to pray with here before I go. And so I looked up, and there, there are literally, maybe not hundreds, but there's at least 100 people in my immediate sight. And my eye caught on this one guy, and I looked, and I, I felt a little impressed to go pray with him. I thought, nah, that's, I think, I think I'm just, I think it's just me. And so I just kind of backed up, prayed a little bit and started to walk away. And, and, I, and I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I, I really feel I should go pray for him. I feel like God is impressing me to go pray. So I walked over there and he got up and started to walk away. So I had to chase him. <laughs> Isn't that the way it works? I don't know. Maybe if I'd have gone the first time, that wouldn't happen. So I, I tap on the shoulder. I said, hey, uh, can I pray with you? Do, I just felt like I should come over and pray with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I didn't know him very well. It's the first time he'd ever been to our camp. And he began to tell me about his life. And so much of his life um, had direct similarities to my life. And as he shared, I just started to cry because I started to feel the pain that he had lived as a young man. Uh, he had a lot of pain from his family and I went, well, and I looked at him and said, now I know you're the only person I prayed for all night. And now I know why I'm here. And we shared together for a while and prayed and cried. And it was a powerful moment where God just ministered. And, and when, when I walked away, all I could think was that I almost missed that moment. And he almost missed it. I'm not saying God wouldn't try to keep reaching out to him through other people. Of course, of course he would. Sure he would. But it wouldn't have been that night. And I just thought, you live in the awe of God when God tells you to do something and you do it. That's the awe of God. 
It's God, I, don't, I, I can't afford. The stakes are too high. I can't afford to miss you on this. Number five, when you make decisions in light of your accountability to God, when you say, in other words, the way that I handle this, you, you know, look, and, and, uh, go on Facebook. It is, it is very discouraging to go on Facebook and see how many people are done with other people. I'm done, and they're out, and I'm done. And, and you want to say, do you, do you understand that one day you're going to answer uh, to God for how you ended the relationship with that person? And he's going to ask some things like, did I want you to end it or did you want to end it? Was that the right way to end it? Did you give that person as much grace as I gave you? Were you as patient and forgiving with them as I was with you? I know there'll just be all kinds of questions. And you say, where's the awe of God? Where, where's the sense that God is here and God is with me and I have to make decisions in light of the fact that I have to report to someone else about how well I did? Number six, when you treat people and money and privilege right, you're walking in the awe of God. So here's my prayer. I was thinking uh, this week, what, what, if, if I could discern what it is that God wants us to be and do, my prayer for Kingwood Church is this. My prayer for you as a part of Kingwood Church is when you go to the ball field or you go to the birthday party or you go on the job, that you would be the very first person in the room that would step across any racial lines, any religious barriers, any barriers of difference, that you as a Kingwood church person would be the first one in every room in Shelby County to step across the line and say, hey, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to know you. This is my name. What's your name? That if it's a religious difference, a racial difference, any difference, you would treat people right because you walk in the awe of God. Because you, you understand that God is in the room and God is with you. My prayer is that every Kingwood person would be the first person to welcome somebody unlike yourself. Everybody else is there looking. What are we going to do? You're the one stretching your arm out. I can't tell you the joy I feel um, when I'm in public. And somebody from a different race, some non-white person, someone from a different race than I am, uh, I, I'm doing whatever I'm doing, and somebody says, hey, pastor. And I look over, and here's a person from Guatemala or Tanzania or Kenya or, or some other place, hungry. <laughs> and they say, hey, pastor. Uh, every time I go to the car after that, I am walking in joy because I say, I want our church to look like heaven. And I'm so proud that I get to call people who aren't like me. They get to call me pastor, and I get to call them brother and sister. That is a moment of absolute joy. That is a moment. I, I never defined it until I read chapter 5. I think when I go to the car, I'm walking in the awe of God. I'm saying only God could make people <laughs> uh, come and be a part of this white person's leadership. That's not like me. Like, I'm white. I'm pure white. I'm bone white. 
I live white. I am white. I'm going to die white. I mean, I'm as white as white can get. But, but only I walk in the awe of God and say, God, what is this? What is this that causes this? And it's the work of God. So what about money? My prayer is that Kingwood Church would be the most generous church in Shelby County. My prayer is that we would walk in the awe of God so much that we would make decisions in light of eternity and say, I don't want, it's not about my castle and my dream and the American dream and how much I can get and how many vacations I can take and how many material goods I can store, but it is about how much can I store up in heaven and I'm going to make decisions in my life that will impact eternity. And then privilege. Let me tell you what my prayer is for every Kingwood Church person that we would spend the majority of our privileges to serve other people. The privileges that you have through work, through family, through status, through economy, through whatever, whatever privileges you have, that they would be spent in a way that it would serve other people. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Every time I hear about someone's life being changed, I, 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 I sense the awe of God. When I heard about our children, our children raised $600. Our first through fifth graders raised $600 to buy shoes to take them to an Indian reservation in South Dakota. And when I saw pictures on Facebook of our children and some of our adult leaders and some of so many of you uh, down on your hands and knees, washing people's feet, putting clean socks on their feet, and putting brand new shoes on their feet. It was a moment of awe. I felt the awe of God. When I heard stories about our children at kids camp a couple weeks ago, down, you could see them down there at the altar worshiping and praying and praying for each other. I felt the awe of God. A week ago when I was at our youth beach camp, and I saw 300 teenagers pounding it out. Yes, Jesus, Jesus, yes, yes. And I saw the pressure, the encouragement from peers go toward God, not away from him. Boy, that's incredible. I felt the awe of God. I felt the awe of God. Every time I see an agnostic or an atheist or just someone who's wandered away come into Kingwood Church and find Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I see the awe of God. I, I, I just saw Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. just saw Jennifer. She came to our church as a teenager who was a self-declared atheist. She found Jesus, and she's serving and has been serving in Honduras as an English teacher as part of a church's outreach ministry. Welcome home. Good to have you here. Give Jennifer a big hand. Glad to have her. Every time I read some of your posts on Facebook, and you begin to describe the unbelievable ways that God has provided for you or provided a moment or an opportunity or a provision and I see the gracious hand of God at work in your life, I feel the awe of God. I say, yes, God is at work. And we, we use that little phrase around Kingwood, only God, only God can do this. Only God can, there's nobody else that can fix this. Last, uh, Christmas before last, we were here in the sanctuary, and we had a moment. If you weren't here, give me, give me a couple minutes to describe it, and then we're going to pray. 
I just had this impression in my heart there was something God wanted us to do. So Christmas communion, we have one service like this. We have the communion tables out. And, and I said to you, here's what I think would be appropriate in light of the pain that's presently in our country. It is always the responsibility of the majority to welcome the minority. It always is. And so I said, when we go to communion, let's have someone from every generation serve communion because we're a multi-generational church. We have people from every age group. But the people that I would like to invite to receive communion first are all minorities. Asian, African, African-American, Hispanic. I would like to invite you to come and receive communion first. How many of you, how many of you were a part of that service? Okay, you, you'll remember this. As we stood here, the thing that overwhelmed all of us was that as, as those of you from minority races began to come, you kept coming, and you kept coming, and you kept coming. And we didn't, we didn't even have all these chairs here, and we didn't have room. You were up each aisle. You kept coming, and you kept coming. And as I looked at all the white people's faces standing there, so many of you, as I locked eyes with you, you were in tears. Because you were saying, this is right. This is right. We have to treat people right. Because of the awe of God. And as you came, I've got that picture. I cherish that picture. One of the greatest moments I've ever experienced in church in my entire life was that moment. And I'll never forget it. Because it was right. We looked that day like heaven. And the awe of God filled our hearts. Would you stand with me this morning and close your eyes? I want us to pray as we go. I want to pray before we go. And I want to ask our prayer team if you join me here. Nobody looking around. Just kind of get to a place where you can be quiet and comfortable. And, and, and just open your mind and open your heart. And I, and I just ask you to close your eyes so you can, you can really focus. If you're here today and you say, you know... My heart's been stirred. I, I, I'm not going to give you a lot of technical definitions. Just one simple thing. My heart has been stirred, and I'm hungry to walk in the awe of God. I'm hungry this morning to walk in the awe of God. I want to walk in the awesomeness of God. I want to come closer. I, I need a greater awareness I want to walk in the awe of God my heart has been stirred when you pray would you pray for me if that's you would you just lift your hand and say man that's me my heart is stirred today I want to walk in the awe of God yeah yes yes yeah just hold it up yep in the back in the middle yeah in the back yep in the front yeah I want to walk in the awesomeness and the awesomeness and the awe of God just lift your hand up and say that's me that's me in the balcony, just lift your hand. That's me. Yeah, yeah, I see it down front. Yes. Yeah. One other, one other thought, and we're going to pray and go. 
If you're here and you say, you know what? Um, maybe you're a guest. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe you've come to Kingwood on and off for some time. And, and, maybe, and maybe the awe of God, maybe while you were here in the service somewhere, you felt the awe of God. You felt some, some sense of His presence, that He was here and real, and that He's inviting you. That He actually wants a relationship with you. He wants you to come close to Him. Maybe, maybe that all stirred your heart today and you say, today, when you pray, would you pray for me? Because I, I want to come closer to God. I'm, I'm further away than I want to be, than I should be. And I want to come closer to God today. Would you just lift your hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to pray for you today. Would you lift your hand? Yes, I see your hand. Yep, I see your hand. Near the back, thank you. Yeah, in the balcony, in the very back, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just say, would you pray for me? Man, I want to come closer to God today. I feel the awesomeness of God. I feel the awe of God today. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to pray with you. And I, I, I want to invite you to prayer. And then, and then we'll dismiss. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come and pray with one of our prayer team. Nobody's going to embarrass you. We're not signing you up for anything. But it's very important that you pray. Prayer is a very important part of our relationship with God. And so if you lifted your hand in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come and pray, and we're going to dismiss. And so you don't have to feel about, feel weird about anything, anything awkward. Nobody's going to point you out. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for the awe of God that I feel in this room right now. I thank you that you are moving, that you are stirring. And just as we spoke with our own words earlier today, you are present. You are in this moment and you are in this room and you are working. I can't see you, but I know that you're here. And so, Lord, I pray now you would seal the things that you've began as we move towards you in prayer. If you lifted your hand, I want you to come right now and let one of the prayer team minister to you. Come right now. If there's somebody beside you, we're all crowded in, just say, excuse me, could I, could I get out? And I want you to come right now. You lifted your hand, I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now all over the room come on and we're just going to pray with you and I'm going to dismiss everybody else so you're not going to be pointed out in any way would you come now would you come now come now come and let's pray Take, turn these things toward God and say God help me I want to live in the awe of God I want to walk in the awe of God I want to walk closer to God this morning I want to walk closer to God this morning the worship team's going to sing this song one time through. If you need to come, I want